0: fascinating book of the Bible, fascinating story filled with a number of unexpected twists and turns. We'll see some of those this morning. As far as the storyline goes, uh, around 586 BC, about 600 years before Jesus Christ walked the earth, under the reign of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, God's people were exiled to the land of Babylon, where they lived for roughly half a century. Toward the end of that half century... The Persians ended up conquering the Babylonians and the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree allowing the Jews to return back to their home, back to Jerusalem. Many of God's people took him up on the offer and did end up returning to to Judah, but many decided to stay in the land that they had become familiar with, the land that they had come to know, a land that had been swallowed up into the three million square mile landmass known as the Persian Empire. As the story of Esther goes, Persia has been the dominant power for Uh, Roughly about a half a century at this point, there's conflict in the city of Susa, which would be in modern day Iran for all of us during the reign of the Persian king Ahasuerus. And it's the kind of conflict that that poses a real threat to the Jewish people. And the question that they're faced with is, will we be exterminated from the storyline of redemptive history? Are we still God's covenant people and covenant relationship with him? Is God still with us or has he abandoned us to our sin in the judgment of exile? In the book of Esther, as we'll see, as we've already begun to see, uh, is God's emphatic declaration, yes, I am at work to see my redemptive purposes to their, their fulfillment, even in, in a godless place like the land of Persia. As the story goes, Esther, a Jewish orphan raised by her older cousin Mordecai, becomes queen of the Persian Empire, and she ends up saving the Jews from certain annihilation. It's a, it's a crazy story, if you've never read it. It's a story that, that deals with some pretty significant theological and existential questions. Questions like, do you ever find yourself wrestling with what the will of God is for your life? Do you, do you ever struggle to believe that God's at work even in the midst of the most seemingly mundane moments of your life? Do you ever struggle with the need to be in control of your own life and destiny, fighting tirelessly to make sure that your plans are not frustrated, analyzing the significance of every unfolding event of your life to a fault? Have you ever wrestled to understand how divine providence and human responsibility work with one another? Do you ever wonder what to do with those moments in your life that God's fingerprints appear to be absent? These are just a few of the questions that a book like the Book of Esther invites us to ask. This book is, is really, as I've said, with every book of the Bible we've walked to it through, it's it's a weapon to add to your arsenal in the battle against sin and unbelief. Not just during this series, but what I hope would be for years to come. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Esther chapter two. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. It's a little bit before the book of Psalms if you're trying to kind of sort out, where do I find this book of the Bible? Very brief, only a few pages in most of your Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us because we've got a good bit to cover this morning and we'll, we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, on this rainy, blustery day, where it would be very easy for our minds and our hearts to just remain in a slumber, I pray that you would awaken us. I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, through the proclamation of your very word, that you would awaken our minds to the beauty of who you are, the reality of what you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would awaken our hearts to those very same truths. And I pray that you would move in our lives such that as we leave this place, we would walk away changed. We would walk away as a people who are truly alive, a people who are truly free, a people that when others look in on our our lives, they, they can't help but ask questions. What's different? What's changed about you? It seems as though your worldview actually radically impacts the way you live, the way you believe, the way you think. God, I pray that you would do that. And I pray that as you do, that this church, you would use this church to put a massive dent in this land of cultural Christianity. God, would you do that? Holy Spirit, you must work. I can't take on the role of the third person of the Godhead. All I can do is open up the Bible and proclaim the truth of Of who you are, Lord, Spirit of God, move. Would you move in a mighty way this morning in each and every one of our minds, our hearts, our lives. For your glory and for our joy and good. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Previously on Esther. I love narrative books of the Bible because I get to do that. I love that we can kind of do this this Netflix episode recap sort of thing week in and week out. Going back to to last week, which you've already said this, if you weren't here or if you were serving in the kid's wing, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast because I'm not going to unpack the backstory and the backdrop of this story in all of its fullness. Um, Get as much of this story as you possibly can over the course of the next couple months. The, the book of Esther begins by introducing us to the great king Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the biblical name for Xerxes. This is the, the same Xerxes that shows up in movies like 300. This is the, the Xerxes who fought the Greeks at the Battle of Thermopylae. As I mentioned last week, throughout the course of this series, you'll hear me use uh, each of those names interchangeably. Uh, Xerxes is Ahasuerus, and Ahasuerus is Xerxes, and one of those is much easier to pronounce than the other. Xerxes was a very powerful man who, who inherited the Persian Empire from his father around the age of, of 32. It was the largest empire to exist in human history up to that point. He, he thought very highly of himself, as you can imagine. He was essentially the king of the known world at that time. The, the story... Of Esther opens up with this sort of panoramic 3 million square mile picture of the kingdom. But, but the lens fairly quickly zooms in on the fortified city and capital of the Persian Empire, the city of Susa. In the third year of Xerxes' reign as king, not long before the king is to go, go to war against the Greeks in this effort to try to expand his empire and as the lens further zooms in, even further than the city, onto the king's palace, we're made keenly aware that if this were a movie, uh, many of us would turn it off in the first few minutes. Martin Luther couldn't stand this book of the Bible because he thought it was filled with a number of, of, of abhorrent things. And he's actually right, that the story is, is not rated PG. It's not even rated PG-13. It may not even be R-rated The book of Esther begins with a party as the king gathers thousands of officials and servants, commanding their loyalty through an open bar, a harem of women, and gifts of gold and silver. You see 180 days of absolute debauchery. And then we're told that the king throws a second party because the 180-day party wasn't enough for the people of Susa, this one lasting roughly a week. The entire population of the city, both great and small, invited to the king's palace. The ultimate purpose of these lavish banquish, banquets that the king establishes in chapter 1, we're told according to chapter 1 verse 4, was to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. It's all about the glory of self. The great, the great Xerxes, I would argue, probably would have loved much of the first chapter of the book of Esther. As the author of Esther goes to great lengths to show us the fullness of the splendor and glory of this king. The words king, queen, royal, and reign occur in every single one but one verse of chapter 1. It's the royal throne. It's the, it's the king's palace. It's the royal wine. Everything belongs to the king. Everything exists for the king. Yet something happens midway through chapter 1 that sets the stage for this story to come that the great king Xerxes invites his queen, Queen Vashti, to parade around a room of drunken men as the king's trophy wife and exhibit for the masses in attendance of this party. And the queen shockingly says, no thanks, I'll pass. And it becomes clear to us what the author of Esther is doing here in the beginning of this story. He's showing us that the great Xerxes, the most powerful man in all of the known world at the time, is not ultimately the one in charge here. We're meant to consider the irony of a king who's described in great wealth and splendor in chapter one who by the end of that very first chapter can't seem to maintain his own dignity in the midst of the defiance of his queen. It's a farce. It's a declaration that the emperor has no clothes. And in in his moment of great embarrassment and exposure, the king issues a royal order banishing Queen Vashti from his presence forever. And we're left wondering... Who will become the new queen in town? And what will she be like? Which is a fantastic way to end a Netflix episode, by the way. And so now we can hit the play button on episode two. Chapter two, verse one. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Heggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women a woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, again, you think, and and he did so. So, so not long after the, cha- the events of chapter one, which include the banishment of Vashti as queen, King, King Xerxes, uh, we know according to the, to the history books, does in fact go to war against Greece, and he's defeated. So not only does he lose a wife, but a war. This is a guy with a pretty big ego. You can imagine this would be a, a significant blow to this man's ego. And so the king's attendants come up with a plan. The king's men should suggest an internal or an international, I should say, beauty pageant. A Miss Persian Empire, essentially, is what's going down here in chapter 2. To be judged by the king for the, the purpose of selecting a replacement for the recently banished queen. What are the criteria of this Miss Persian Empire, you might ask? Verse 2 Let beautiful, young virgins be sought out for the king. Remember, if you go back to chapter one, it was declared that the king was to search for someone better than Vashti, better likely meaning of more submissive character, someone who's not gonna make the the king look like an idiot in a room full of people. And yet, this empire-wide search for her replacement, for Vashti's replacement, has absolutely nothing to do with character, does it? There are three criteria, beautiful, young, unmarried unless we think that this is some fortuitous opportunity for some lucky young girl even the language of a beauty contest is a little misleading because it was really more like a military draft you really didn't get much of a say as to whether you were brought to the palace it really didn't matter what you had planned for your life if you were beautiful young and unmarried you were free game women were brought in they were uprooted from their homes Many of them treated like objects rather than human beings. The the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, he errs conservatively in his guess. He says that there were upwards of 400 women who were part of the search here in Esther chapter 2. Unless we think that the king was a respecter of gender. According to the historian Herodotus, Xerxes had roughly 500 young boys castrated each year to serve as his eunuchs. It didn't matter whether you were male or female. Either way, you existed for the the king's pleasure and purposes. As you move into verse 5, we now get introduced to to the two most influential characters aside from God himself in the entire story, which is pretty fascinating because neither of these characters are the king. Verse 5 says, Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish, A Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He's talking about the exile there. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here you get introduced to. Esther, and Mordecai. Mordecai was a descendant of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, a very Jewish man, uh, associating him with another son of Kish, these words here in verse 5, namely King Saul, which will bear significance a little further in the story. We'll actually see why that matters next week. Mordecai is declared to be a Jew on the one hand, and yet his very name is derived from the Babylonian god Marduk. Many of the Jews had been given names when they were born that were rooted in the character and redemptive work of the God of Israel, and yet when they were carried into exile, many of them were eventually stripped of those names and given names representative of pagan gods. And at this point in the story, some of those uh, people even took those names for themselves. So you see this kind of dual identity, similar to what you see in the book of Daniel, Mordecai is a a man simultaneously living in two worlds, and so is Esther. She's the only character mentioned in the story with two names. The author's way of depicting her is a woman attempting to live in two very different realities at the same time. The Jewish one in which she was raised by her older cousin, and the Persian one in which she was plunged. The name Hadassah, uh, her Hebrew name actually means myrtle, like the flower. In books like Isaiah and Zechariah, if you go back and read some of the prophetic books, the myrtle has prophetic symbolism. Uh, It's described as replacing the thorns and briars of the desert, which is kind of a depiction of God's forgiveness and acceptance of his people. Even in the simple name, we're given the smallest hint that God is actually at work in this story, in the book of Esther. She's described by her outward beauty, which is meant to tip us off as to how things are going to unfold for her against the backdrop of the Persian Empire. Even up to this point, you you encounter a number of seeming coincidences, don't you? I mean, it just so happens that Mordecai and his cousin Esther, whom he had adopted, are living in the city of Susa, uh, of all of the Persian Empire. It just so happens that Esther is drop-dead gorgeous, and it just so happens that she's the exact appropriate age for the king's royal beauty contest. As I mentioned last week, and we'll see this throughout this story, none of these seeming coincidences are coincidences at all. God is on the move. He's bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment through his unseen hand of providence. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women and the young woman pleased him and won his favor and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem we're we're not really told how esther feels about this are we All that she's being walked through at this point in the story, even the passive form of the verb, she was taken. You see that kind of passive use of verbs throughout this this story, which many argue points to the fact that the characters are caught up in the events themselves. And yet, at the same time, once she's brought in, she doesn't really seem to buck against the system, does she? She seems to be fairly compliant. Unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the story of Daniel, she doesn't seem to be willing to walk through a fiery furnace in order to stand up for her morals. She seems to be willing to play by the rules a little bit. After all, we're told that she won Haggai's favor. Verse 10 goes on to say, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Again, we're, we're meant to feel conflicted about these characters. Here we're told that Esther conceals her identity as a member of the covenant people of God. She suppresses her identity as one of God's people, and she does so because Mordecai commands her to do it. Which, by the way, if we're honest, we all do that at times, don't we? We may not deny our faith, but we're tempted to conceal it. Maybe in the workplace at times, among certain family members and friends, with certain people in the neighborhood. Esther conceals her identity as one of God's people, and we're told, verse 12, And when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Good grief. You thought chapter one was scandalous, right? You ain't seen nothing yet. Now you get this description of the treatment of the women who are brought in for this contest. And here again, we see the same kind of excessiveness that we began to see back in chapter 1. Expensive spices and fragrant oils used incredibly liberally in preparing the women for a night with the great king Xerxes. I mean, if you were a seller of essential oils back then and you managed to land this guy as your client, you'd be making some serious bank, right? Each woman, we're told, was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem into the king's palace. We're talking about clothing, jewelry, even aphrodisiacs at the time. Many many scholars believe that each woman was allowed to keep whatever she took with her as a wedding gift from the king. Or, if you want to get really honest, payment for services rendered. Just the fact that, that each woman is brought to the king in the evening tells you everything you need to know. Sleep with them first, maybe learn their favorite color in the morning. That's what's going on here. After spending the night with the king, you became one of the king's concubines. No leaving to marry or return to your family. You couldn't even see the king again unless he called for you. We're talking about functional widowhood for most of these women. As Ian Dugan says in his commentary, the king wished to add to his collection of living dolls. Those chosen would live in secluded splendor for the rest of their lives, even if they were only rarely taken out and played with. Indeed, it was a bad life on the scale of existence within the empire. King Xerxes essentially uses women to satisfy his own personal passions and desires here in chapter 2. Surely not Esther. Surely she's going to stand up for herself, right? Surely she's not going to give in to the sexual advances of a pagan womanizer. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Esther arguably assimilates pretty well. Again, you see, she doesn't push back on the eating of the king's food, unlike Daniel and his friends in exile. She submits to the Hugh hafner like antics of King Xerxes, and she hides her Jewishness in the midst of all of it. In the words of one scholar, Esther is the ultimate anti-Vashti. And the great king Xerxes makes her his queen, an event upon which the entire story hinges. Which is why you have the mentioning of yet another banquet. Banquets are themes in the book of Esther. Every time you see one, you're meant to ask, what of significance is taking place in this moment? This time it's in Esther's honor. You have this Jewish orphan who becomes the queen of the Persian empire. And as we'll see, she now has influence on the unfolding events of this story. As chapter 2 comes to a close... We're told in verse 19, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, which by the way, if you're going to have a bodyguard, Bigthan, that's a pretty awesome name. The, those two guys became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. In, in, in the ancient Near East, uh, court rulings and official matters were handled at or near the gate. And, and so most argue that Mordecai is now some sort of, Official at this point in the story. Perhaps he was made an official by Esther as she became queen. The the king's gate is where justice is dispensed. And so there's this subtle hint that justice is even going to come through Mordecai as a character in this story. You got two of the king's eunuchs deciding to plot an assassination, probably because the king made them eunuchs, right? That's a good enough reason in and of itself. As I once heard a fellow pastor say, the technical definition of a eunuch is someone who used to be happy. These these two guys establish a plan to assassinate the king and Mordecai, who happens to be at the king's gate, overhears the plot, and he passes the word onto the king, who Esther, who now happens to be queen, and the king lives to pursue his own self-exaltation another day. This is the moment that brings Mordecai into the king's good graces, we're told, which sets the stage for the great reversal of the story that we'll get to soon enough. That We're told, according to verse 23, that that this heroic moment for Mordecai is recorded in a book of memorable deeds and that that very book, when we get to chapter 6 a few weeks from now, is brought to the king on a sleepless night. He can't sleep. He asks for this very book, and his reading of this book is what leads to the saving of the Jews crazy. It's fascinating. There's no reason that the king should forget to reward Mordecai right here in this moment in chapter two. He would have been all over the Persian news, Mordecai. This is the guy who stopped, stopped the JFK assassination of his day, you could say. But the king conveniently forgets to reward Mordecai. He doesn't even get a jelly of the month club, nothing. And that absent-mindedness in chapter two is what sets the stage for the king to reward Mordecai at the exact right moment that would bring about the rescue of the Jews from certain annihilation, or as theologians like to call it, God's providence. Again, Xerxes, he thinks he's truly in power, but we see just how powerless this man truly is as God works to sovereignly bring his plan of redemption to fulfillment in his perfect timing which is great for all of us who struggle with whether or not God has his timing on track with our lives, right? Anybody find yourself there? What chapter 2 declares is that it's not God's timing that's imperfect, but rather our knowledge. That God always knows what he's doing and he's always on time according to his sovereign plan. That the two things that need to happen in order to rescue the Jews from certain annihilation come to fruition here in chapter 2. Esther becomes queen, and Mordecai finds favor with the king, and these significant events unfold in the lives of morally ambiguous people. It's really easy to want to villainize or vindicate the actions of Esther and Mordecai, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, couldn't Mordecai have protected Esther from the womanizing king? You better believe my two daughters, I'm going to handle it a little different than that dude. And, And what about Esther being told by him to conceal her faith? And what about her willingness to assimilate? And and then on the other hand, you go, well, the the lives of the Jewish people are at stake, as we'll see soon enough. Isn't Mordecai simply protecting his people from mass genocide? I mean, wouldn't you do anything to stop the Holocaust? Isn't Esther an example of courage? Surely she was forced into a situation that she couldn't get herself out of, right? We try to figure out any way we can to either villainize or, or vindicate the people in this story. We so desperately want to sort out the villains and the heroes in the Bible, and the author of the book of Esther just won't let us do it. If, If the message of the Bible is God loves the good guys and hates the bad guys, so be a good guy and God will love you, if that's the message of the Bible, we've got a real problem on our hands because Esther can't seem to stand up to anyone's scrutiny. The feminists can't stand the fact that she uses her looks to get ahead, and the religious are disturbed by the fact that she abandons Jewish food laws and sleeps with a pagan. If it's about the good guys and the bad guys, we're done for. Because the reality is that that you and I, we're a lot more like the characters in this story than we would like to think. Back then, men measured themselves by wealth and power, women by beauty and sexuality. You might say, thank God we don't live in those days. To which I would say, you are the naive person in the room, right? We, We do, the world's the same now as it was then. The world says image matters most. What you have, beauty, money, prestige, matters more than anything else. We're, we're constantly giving ourselves over to beauty treatments, you might say. How can I make myself look better? What can I get my hands on that would improve my image? That practically every one of us in this room is enticed by some sort of beauty potion in life. In the words of Tim Keller, to some degree, we're all concubines to the world system, selling our souls for one night with the king, and we, and we do it in, in really crafty ways. There's, there's the material aspect of it where it comes through the grabbing of, of this vehicle or that vehicle that people will see us parading around town in or the next gadget or electronic device, maybe the next wardrobe addition, maybe even our home, the things that we uh, chase after in an attempt to make ourselves look a certain way uh, before others in the community. Most often, not bad things, right? There's nothing inherently evil about a home or a car or an electronic device. Sometimes we, we treat other human beings as beauty treatments. If I can just get in with this particular social circle, then I'll be somebody. Then people will think that I'm beautiful. Or because I haven't gotten in with this particular group of people, I must be ugly. There must be something ugly about, about me. We, we even do it with spiritual disciplines, don't we? If I, if I read my Bible just a little bit more, then God will find me to be a little bit more beautiful. If I pray just a little bit more, and, and if I do it in a public arena where people are looking at me, maybe they'll think I'm even more beautiful of a person. We take good things and we, and we treat them as beauty potions in the name of self enhancement. And what that is, it is a bond, it's a form of bondage. Let me give you an example in my own life. Um, And this is essentially me outing myself so that I've got to do something about it in an act of repentance. Um, A little over a year ago, I got accepted into a postgraduate PhD feeder program, I guess would be the best way to explain it, uh, for a a really incredible theological institution. And what what I came to find over the course of my time walking through the process of getting from having been accepted into the program to actually putting my rear end in a seat for for my first lecture was that there's something wicked going on in my heart here. There's something about this that I want people to see, and I want them to be impressed with, and I know it, because if I were to walk away from this opportunity, one of the things that would be most devastating to me would, would be to have to remove that piece of education off of my Facebook page. And let me complicate matters even more. The the things that unfolded in order for that opportunity to present itself just seemed like God was opening door after door. It would have been very easy circumstantially, kind of like Abraham with Isaac. God, you said you made a promise. I had a son. Surely you don't want me to carry him up the mountain to sacrifice him. I see all the open doors here, so God, you must be doing this. You surely aren't calling me to this. And yet sometimes I think God opens just enough doors and then presents us, with, with what's going on in our hearts so that we might experience even greater liberation. And so here's the reality. I'm walking away from that program, at least for now, because I know what's going on in my heart and I know that's a beauty treatment of sorts for me. Um, don't don't come and call me a hypocrite if you see me a year from now engaging in in that very same program because God works on his own timetable to work in our hearts to, to draw us back to him. But the reality is we, we all do it to some degree And it's bondage to live that way, to constantly live looking over your shoulder, wondering if everybody is seeing this or that in your life and is impressed with it. And and ultimately, whether God feels that way about you. It's It's a miserable way to live, selling our souls for one night with the king, so to speak. Praise be to God that the message of the Bible is not God loves the good guys and hates the bad guys, so be a good guy and God will love you because we're all a morally ambiguous bag, are we not? The message of the Bible is that God pours out his grace upon undeserving sinners like you or me who may or may not even appreciate that grace at any given moment. God is a God of grace, which is good news for concubines like us. We, we get no indication in the book of Esther that Esther is walking with God, but we do have indication that God is walking with Esther. We see his providential hand all over her life. He doesn't give up on her. Even when she makes shady, questionable decisions, he's still there. He doesn't walk away from the story. He doesn't necessarily get her out of the situation, but he gets her through it. He stays with her. He changes her, and ultimately, as we'll see, he leverages her life for good. And he does the same thing with us. Karen Jobes in her commentary says, This episode from Esther's life offers great encouragement and comfort when we find ourselves in situations where every choice is an odd mix of right and wrong. Only God knows the end of our story from its beginning. We are responsible to him for living faithfully in obedience to his word in every situation as we best know how. Even if we make the wrong decision whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Or the more artistic way to say it, Ian Duggett in his commentary says, God is able to form beautiful pictures out of our smudged and stained efforts. Isn't that amazing? You, You might ask, How? How is it possible for God to relate to us this way? And the answer is very simple. Jesus Christ. Esther had to give up her freedom for the king. Meanwhile, Jesus, the true king, gave up his freedom for us in order to free us from the bondage of our own wills. Like Esther and Mordecai, Jesus grew up in a sinful world filled with temptation, yet unlike Esther and Mordecai, there is no moral ambiguity in Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect sinless life that we can never live. He died for every one of our moral failures, every one of them. And he invites us not to be his eunuchs or his concubines, but rather citizens of his eternal kingdom by his grace. Perhaps the best news of the gospel in Esther chapter 2 is this. Esther was loved because she was already beautiful. But Jesus loves you in order to make you Beautiful. He gave himself up for us so that he might present us to himself in splendor. When we we grab hold of that, when we soak in that, it's freeing. It's freeing. As you see that that beauty, on the one hand, is not about self-absorption, but rather self-sacrifice. We see it in Jesus Christ himself. We're freed from constantly staring in the proverbial mirror. And yet, at the same time, we understand that we're declared beautiful in Christ, That the bridegroom Jesus looks at you and he sees you clothed in his very righteousness which he gifted you. And he's filled with delight over what he sees. Only to the degree to which you soak in that reality will you be free from chasing after beauty according to the world's standards. Free to just lay down at the feet of Jesus the things that that we leverage in an attempt to enhance our own images so that we can taste and know what true freedom actually is as we rest in the beauty that we've been given in Jesus Christ, the identity that's ours in him. And so that's what I want us to do for the next few minutes is just simply soak in the truth of the gospel. Soak in the the reality that, that you've been free from chasing after the beauty potions of the world. It's it's not that the response is now to demonize um, academic institutions and programs or homes or uh, electronic devices or spiritual disciplines or social circles that we can't seem to work our way into. That's not not the hope. The hope is to, to say before the Lord, my heart wants to take good things and use them to improve the way that others and you Look and feel and think about me. And I'm willing to lay that down before you and rest in the fact that I've been made beautiful in Jesus Christ and to walk in that freedom. I promise you, you walk in that kind of freedom, that's evangelistic. It's missional. People see that and they go, you've got a freedom that I don't have. I'm in bondage. And all of a sudden, the gospel becomes so much more complex and robust than Jesus died for my sins. He did. He did. But but there's something freeing that actually impacts the way we live tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. and, And the culturally Christian landscape doesn't know what to do with that. And it begins as we over and over again come back to the foot of the cross and soak in the truth of the gospel and who we are in Jesus Christ.